This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language and mature themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 267. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you. I'll also tell you the latest on my life and my writing. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 8 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Brian, Fiona, and Sasha met up with the two other members of their old PSYOPs unit. Del Matthews is a wolf morph, the only member of their team to take the Curse of Metamore. He's also a telekinetic and a pilot, two skills that will come in very handy on this mission at Matthias Skyport. Trace Umbara is an esper, like Rebecca, but Trace's talent is more tactical in nature, allowing him to react to things before they happen and aim his weapons with uncanny accuracy. With a little help from Brian's electrokinesis, the team made it through the security checkpoints and into the skyport proper. From there, they traveled up to the 87th floor, where a security checkpoint stood between them and the cargo bay, where the syndicate's package would be coming in. Sasha used her telepathy to swipe the day's passcode from a passing employee. Then Fiona used her psychometabolism to give herself superhuman strength and speed which she used to disable the four guards at the security station. With the way open, Brian and his teammates slipped on their disguise charms, illusions that would conceal their identities during the violence to come. Brian cracked his way into the airport's security system, and the team put together their plan. Brian will use the security station as a base of operations, monitoring the progress of the mission, and providing electronic countermeasures where needed. Dell and Trace will go up to the cargo bay and get themselves on board the tender that's unloading the skyship. Fiona will stand by in the ventilation ducts, ready to sneak the package out of the building, and Sasha will stay with Brian, using her exceptional telepathic range to keep everyone else in communication, and using the skyport maps to track Fiona's progress through the ventilation system. That's as much of a plan as they could put together in the time available. Brian took one more look around at his squad, people with whom he'd faced death and impossible odds over and over again. This job should have been easy by comparison, but they were thrown into it with little actionable intelligence, and even less time to plan. He urged his team to be cautious, and not to take any stupid risks. After five years of doing the Empire's dirty work, their hands have enough blood on them as it is.
Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 8 Daniel tugged distractedly at the collar of his coveralls, watching as the cargo tender glided into the docking bay and came to rest on its landing skids. It was little more than a broad, squat box with engines attached, four meters high by eighteen meters long by nine meters wide. A rounded, two-man cockpit was mounted in front and blended smoothly into the body of the vehicle. It looked like a big, gray bug crouching in the middle of the cargo bay, and Daniel wondered how big its drive turbines must be to allow it to fly. There was a loud hiss and a whir of motors, and a loading ramp extended from the back of the tender. The crew chief began barking out orders, and Daniel, Victor, and the rest of the deck monkeys hustled up the ramp and into the shuttle. Fold-down seats with restraint harnesses lined the port and starboard sides of the cargo bay, and they quickly strapped themselves in for takeoff. Mid-air collisions and turbine failures were rare, but you didn't want to be unsecured in the event that something bad happened. The shuttle's back end was open to the sky, with only a meter-high folding tailgate to keep parcels from sliding out during flight. A fully closed back end with retractable doors would have added weight and complexity to the design, and for the low speeds and short distances its job required, that simply wasn't a cost-effective trade-off. Though he knew it was reasonably safe, Daniel still found himself sitting down as close to the front of the tender as possible. Victor had a strange expression on his face as he strapped in next to Daniel. His eyes were distant, but there was a tightness in his jaw and forehead that suggested deep concentration. Daniel wanted to take his hand and open a link, but physical contact of that sort was rare among mundane males, especially in a job like this one. The last thing either of them wanted to do was arouse suspicion. Daniel waited until the loading ramp retracted and the drive turbine spun up, filling the entire shuttle with a loud hum. He leaned over and spoke directly into Victor's ear. Trouble? Victor shifted and blinked, then turned to look at him. Not yet, he said. Keep your walls up until I say otherwise. Lock your thoughts down tight. Daniel frowned, puzzled. It wasn't that what Victor asked was difficult. Every teep in the collective learned how to shut up, telepathically speaking, to avoid broadcasting his thoughts to those around them. Daniel's mental shields weren't strong enough to block a serious, concerted probe from a powerful teep, but he could block out casual intrusions and reduce his psychic signature until it was smaller and less noticeable than a mundane's. That, in turn, would make it unlikely for other teeps to hear his thoughts unless they were specifically searching for him. But why would that matter now? Victor saw the question in his eyes before he could ask it. Mages can read minds if they know the right spells, he said, keeping his voice as low as possible over the engine noise. Vamps can influence you if your walls aren't up. We don't know who else is coming after this thing, so don't chance it. Daniel nodded, then closed his eyes. Reluctantly, he raised his mental shields, 
walling up what little telepathic ability he had behind screens of focused thought. It wasn't something he liked doing if he could avoid it. He enjoyed the touch of another mind against his, even if he was too weak to initiate it on his own. By the time he had opened his eyes, the familiar, cotton-in-the-ears sensation of the psi-shield had settled into place. He could still use his psychic healing if need be, but telepathically, he was as mind-blind as a Monday. A few minutes later, the cargo tender slowed to a halt, the deceleration creating a familiar lurch in Daniel's stomach. He looked out and saw that they were right under the skyship's belly, their back end pointed toward an airlock that hung down below the ventral cargo bay. After they had hovered there for a moment, the engines whined again, and the shuttle began moving slowly backwards. Daniel knew that the cargo tender sat flush against the underside of the skyship when it was in flight, its back end sealed against the airlock. The image of a remora hanging onto a shark flitted briefly through his mind. There was a soft thump as the shuttle made contact with the airlock, followed by the whine of motors and the clank of bolts as the tender locked into place. Then there was another soft hiss as the pressure equalized between the two vessels, and the rear hatch slid open to reveal a smooth incline sweeping up into the cargo bay. Daniel followed Victor out of the tender and up into the skyship, trying not to gawk at the huge open space stacked floor-to-ceiling with boxes and shipping crates. The thing was a bloody flying warehouse. No wonder the supermarkets could afford to ship in fresh tropical produce to Metamore City. The economy of scale on a ship like this had to be amazing. All right, you grunts, let's get to work, the crew chief bellowed. He focused his attention on three young and scared-looking employees who must have been fresh recruits. Listen up, runts. I want the heaviest crates lined up down the middle of the tender, smaller boxes on either side, fragiles in one layer on top. He lifted a scanner gun that hung in a holster at his belt, identical to the ones that each of them had been given when they reported for duty. Scan each package as it goes on board, and for profit's sake, make sure you balance the load. If that boat starts listing on the way back down, I swear somebody's ass is going to be in a sling tonight. Now move it, move it, move it! Daniel hurried to join the others, loading crates onto rolling carts and moving them down into the cargo tender. He pulled out his scanner gun and ran it over the shipping labels as he unloaded each of the crates. It beeped and flashed a green light when the scan was confirmed. The gun would then transmit a message to the customs office at the Skyport, notifying them of who had sent the package, where it was coming from, and what it contained. The customs agents would then use that list when examining the contents of the cargo bay, ensuring that nothing would be misplaced or left uninspected. The cargo bay was large enough that the tender had to make several trips. While they were unloading after the second trip, Daniel spotted Victor talking to the crew chief in hushed tones. The chief nodded and went over to the cargo bay's entrance, where he addressed two of the security guards, Evans Merks in disguise. What did you say to him? Daniel asked, as they wrestled another crate onto one of the rolling carts. I told him that one of the packages up there has an MID seal on it, Victor said. He's going to pull a couple of guards to escort it down and make sure that nothing happens to it. Daniel raised an eyebrow. And is there an MID seal on it? 
There is now. Now that didn't make sense. Victor might have the resources to forge an MID seal, but that would be sure to draw attention to the package, and that was exactly what their employer didn't want. Word would get out about the Ministry's secret parcel, and every eye in the crew would be on... Daniel blinked, abruptly getting it. You marked some other package, didn't you? he asked quietly. Misdirection for whoever's watching us. Victor smirked and nodded, new respect for Daniel showing in his eyes. And it puts two guns on our side aboard the tender, he said. I've located the client's parcel. We'll bring it down with the next load. Daniel felt that slight, queasy feeling rising up in his stomach again, a mixture of worry and adrenaline. You think they'll make their move? If they don't, they're idiots, Victor said. You guard the package when we come back down. I'll keep an eye out for unwanted guests. He thumped Daniel's shoulder encouragingly. Stay with me, Daniel. The hard part's nearly done. What do you think? Trace peered out from around the stack of crates and scowled. God's taking the trip upstairs? Yeah, looks likely. He directed his thoughts back through the link to Sasha. Hey, Blondie, tell Brian we need a diversion to get on that overgrown ferry boat. He's working on it, Sasha assured them. Show me what you're looking at. Trace opened up his mind a little further allowing Sasha to slip in behind his eyes and share his senses. About ten meters of open space separated them from the front hatch of the cargo tender. It wouldn't be hard for them to get inside and replace the two men flying the vessel. The trick was doing it without being seen by any of the four guards or twenty-odd deck workers. More importantly, the diversion would need to be something that was merely annoying, not overly dramatic or dangerous. If things went too wrong, the unloading operation would be stopped entirely until the problem was investigated. The vamps would reschedule the smuggling operation, and next time, the hive might not find out about it before it happened. Something subtle, then, Brian mused, echoing Trace's line of thought. I can do that. Give me a second here to uplink to the cargo tender's computer. Less than a minute later, a warning chime began to sound from inside the tender's cargo bay. "'Warning,' it said, in a placid female synth voice. "'Drive turbines are misaligned. Please recalibrate before liftoff.'" The message looped, playing again every few seconds. The crew chief cursed vehemently and began shouting at his employees, berating them for their failure to properly balance the cargo. His words drove them into action, and within a minute's time, the deck workers were rushing about for tools, opening up the access panels along the sides of the tender, and adjusting the alignment on the huge, heavy turbines that would keep the vessel in the air. The front hatch opened, and the pilot and co-pilot climbed out of the cockpit, looking exasperated. "'How long, chief?' the pilot asked. The chief visibly bit back his first reaction. Trace knew a guy like that didn't have the rank to snap at a flyboy, even one who only flew overgrown skimmer trucks for a living. Ten, maybe fifteen minutes,' he said, his voice tight with anger. The pilot sighed and gestured to his companion. "'Fine, we're going on break. See you in ten. 
The chief nodded to them curtly, then turned back to managing his crew. The pilot and co-pilot left the cargo bay and headed down the hall to the right. Trace and Dell caught up with them in the pilot's break room and quickly incapacitated the two civilian flyers, leaving them bound and gagged in the nearby locker room. Neither of them were wearing flight suits that were the right size or shape for a couple of ex-skyball players, especially not when one of them was half-wolf. Fortunately, the Skyport's shuttle crews were as diverse as the rest of Metamore City, and Trace used his clairvoyance talent to locate two suits that would fit them perfectly. They made it back to the cargo bay in just over twelve minutes. The crew chief glowered at them suspiciously as they approached. Where'd those other flyboys go? he asked. We're covering for them, ain't we? Dell said. His accent was brazenly careless, mimicking the speech of the street rats of the Valley South Borough. He showed the chief a lascivious grin. Found a nice brace of hens, they did. Two stews just come to ground after six weeks, and pure gantin' for it. Seize the day, I says. Trace snorted loudly. <laughs> they were seasoned more in a day, I think, he said, chuckling to himself. Playing a breed was a balancing act. He couldn't sound stupid, or the chief would never buy that he was a pilot. But he also couldn't use his usual accent, with its upper-middle-class diction and Arambian undertones. He settled for a lower-middle-class, blue-collar sound, and the chief seemed to accept it without question. The older man let out a rueful chuckle, his anger temporarily diffused. "'Won't blame a man for taking pussy where he can find it,' the chief said, smirking. "'Not if he's got someone to fill in for him, anyway.' Go on and get set, we're just finishing the recal. Trace and Dell climbed the rungs to the front hatch and took their seats in the cockpit. Dell was the better flyer of the two of them, so he took the pilot's chair while Trace slid into the co-pilot's position. The controls were based on the older, more tamper-proof system of yoke, throttle, and thrust pedals, as opposed to the fly-by-mind spelljack system used in most civilian skimmers. In addition to the normal skimmer head-up displays showing altitude, fuel, and speed, there were multifunction touchscreens that displayed information on weight distribution, proximity detectors, rear and side camera views, docking clamp status, and turbine strain. Despite the added complexity, Trace felt confident that he could control the bulky craft if he needed to, as long as he didn't have to actually dock with the skyship. The intercom crackled. All set back here, the chief's voice said. Copy that, Dell said. Spinning up now. He pushed the throttle forward, and the sound of the drive turbines built from a low hum to a high-pitched whine. The enchanted, rune-carved discs, interspersed along the length of the turbines, began weaving their mana fields around the shuttle. A second later, it rose off of the deck of the cargo bay, its gravity opposed by the drive turbine's repulsor field and Dell pushed up the lever that would retract the landing skids. Keeping an eye on the shuttle's rearview camera, Dell smoothly and expertly backed the vessel out of the mouth of the cargo bay and into open air. Clear? Dell asked. Trace checked the proximity detectors. Clear. All sides. Dell angled the thrust pedals in opposite directions, rocking the left one back while tilting the right one forward. This caused the drive turbines to angle to the left with respect to the nose of the shuttle, 
and the nose began to yaw to the right in response to the uneven repulsor field. Dell held the pedals in that position until they had made a neat 180-degree turn, then angled the left thrust pedal forward into the same position as the right. The cargo tender began moving forward, and he pulled back slightly on the yoke to angle their nose upward. He pushed the throttle a little further forward, and Trace felt the slight drop in apparent gravity as they accelerated toward the ship above them. Balls, balls, Del muttered. I've flown troop transports that maneuvered faster than this. That may be deliberate, Fiona said into the link. Given the sort of cargo the skyships usually carry, it would be in their best interests to prevent the pilots from doing anything too hasty. See, that's the problem with the Empire today, Dell said. Too many safety nets. No faith in the common man. If you can't trust your own pilots, who can you trust? Says the pilot in the process of committing grand larceny, Sasha said, her wry amusement obvious. Exactly, Dell agreed, grinning. The Skyport officials should rest secure in the knowledge that if I'm going to swipe something, I'll work to the best of my ability to make sure it lands in one piece. Cut the chatter, Brian said his telepathic voice sounding tense. You don't know who might be listening. Trace frowned. You picking up any other thought traffic, Sash? Nothing I can pick out, she said. I can hear some background echoes that seem familiar, but I can't make a positive ID. Probably just a couple of hive members somewhere in the skyport. I could probably track them down, but I'd have to break the link to you and Dell. Negative, Brian said. You shut down the link at this distance, and it'll take five minutes to get it solid again. We can't afford it. Not like it matters, anyway, Dell said. Even if there are other teeps somewhere around here, it's not like they'll be working for the vamps, right? And that's the end of Chapter 8. Come back next time when Dell and Trace make their move on the cargo tender, and Daniel faces a difficult choice. Tony Morrison said, Writing is really a way of thinking, not just feeling, but thinking about things that are disparate, unresolved, mysterious, problematic, or just sweet. So, let's take a walk inside my thoughts for a while. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of December 12th through December 18th. I wrote 3,800 words this week, over the course of 5.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 724 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 245 days without breaking my chain. My word count was down a bit this week, because I spent this past weekend working on the podcast. I took a couple of weeks off from audio production during November and December, so I recorded two episodes this week and edited one of them. Now I have six finished episodes in my buffer and one in raw audio. I'll probably edit that one this weekend and try to record two more. That will put me in good shape when the podcast comes back in January. On the days I am writing, I'm still moving steadily forward on Honor Bound. The viewpoint is switched back to Natasha who is in some serious trouble because an old enemy has tracked her down. When I started planning this series, 
I wasn't sure if I was going to use this character in the first book, or if I would keep him in reserve to pop up later in the series. But by the time I got through the second act, I realized two things. First, I had referenced this character enough times throughout the book that I needed to pay that off sooner rather than later. The crisis in Act 3 is all about the heroines retreating behind their masks, trying to embrace the old identities that they found safe and comfortable. But for Natasha, this enemy is a big part of the reason why she can't go back to the life she once knew. Her time as a soldier was important for her development, but she's moved beyond it, and being confronted with this reminder of her past will help her to realize that. Second, I needed to put both Natasha and Honor in danger for this final act, danger that they can't get through without each other. Bringing back this powerful enemy offered me the opportunity to raise those stakes. The story is now in chapter 36, and the manuscript is about 99,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have three new patrons this month. Please welcome Barry, Retro Seamstress, and Lori. Lori also sent in some feedback. She writes, Wow, I can't believe I finally signed up for Patreon. I love what you write, and how your world is so complex, yet accessible and relatable. There is so much I want to say here, but it would all come out as text blubbering. Long story short, thank you for your stories and the world you share with fans. I look forward to hearing more from you, and learning from you in the days and months to come. Thank you again, and happy 2021! Thank you very much, Lori. Welcome to the Patreon, and thank you for introducing yourself. I'm so glad you're enjoying the stories. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For a small monthly or annual pledge, you can get access to exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. A pledge of $3 a month will let you see the first draft of Honor Bound while I'm writing it, as well as character bios, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, every patron gets access to exclusive bonus art from talented Metamore City artists, as well as a special channel on our Discord server, author commentaries on past episodes, and an annual holiday card as a thank you for your patronage. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the donation tiers, and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715 3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 
by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.